1: We have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Michael Mann at our next roundtable in the Road to Cop 28 series. To prepare for the episode, this week's episode of From the Archive is his first appearance on the DSR podcast, discussing his latest book. We hope you enjoy, and please look forward to the next episode in the Road to Cop 28.
0: 9 12 10. Hello and welcome to the podcast. As uh, all of you who are regular listeners know, periodically um, we uh, turn to books that we think are essential for you to get and to read and to their authors. Um, And uh, we're doing that this time not only because the book is important, but as many of you know, we've launched a new series of podcasts, a special series leading up to COP28 that are going to talk about the climate crisis and we have a variety of experts who are participating in live roundtables that are part of that series and i encourage you to listen to it today we're going to talk to one expert a special one who is the author of a new book his uh, name is dr michael Mann. manny's presidential distinguished professor in the department of earth and environmental science and director of the center of science sustainability and the media at the university of pennsylvania and his new book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from the Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis, um, which, by the time you hear this, will be out. And congratulations to you on the release of your book.
1: Uh, thanks, David. It's a real pleasure to be with you.
0: Um, now, you know, I, I thought it was kind of interesting, and I'm sure you thought it was kind of interesting too, as I was going through the reviews and so forth of your book, and all of them said excellent book, and all of them said it was balanced. Um, But, you know, some of them said, you know, the the news is good because Michael Mann says that we can handle all the overheating of the climate we're getting. (laughs) And then some of them said the news is bad because Michael Mann said that might take several thousand years. (laughs) And it was... There was this apparent, you know, sort of people emphasized what they wanted to hear in it.
1: Yeah, the veritable half half uh, glass empty or half full, I suppose. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, I I I think it's fair to say that the message of the book is uh, that for the foreseeable future, if we don't change things around, the glass is more than half empty.
1: And that's right. I wouldn't have named it our fragile moment if there weren't a fragility about the moment that we're in, and 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 there. And that fragility exists for many reasons, but but uh, the climate crisis is paramount among them.
0: Well, I, you couldn't have orchestrated um, uh, sort of global weather patterns better to lead into the you know uh, uh, publication of the book. I mean, this summer has been one horrific event after another that are all. From fires to floods to other extreme weather around yeah, the you world,
1: know, we, we deployed those space lasers. You know, expertly. Uh, yeah, well, to, th-
0: to- but well, I'm glad we got the credit from Marjorie Taylor Greene for doing that. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but but um, do you see some of what we've seen on the on the on the climate front as a tipping point, the beginning of a of a of a new uh, chapter in this uh, crisis,
1: and you mean a tipping point, sort of in the public consciousness. Yeah, uh, do yeah. Who, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because there have been so many moments like that where we felt like, well, surely this must be that that tipping point in consciousness. Uh, Superstorm Sandy, Katrina. Um, you know, the Pacific Northwest heat dome uh, two summers ago. What ha- we've seen happen in Maui. Um, one wonders what has to happen before we truly collectively awaken to uh, the the threat that we face. And frankly, the the real reason we haven't yet risen to the challenge is because, as you know, there's some bad actors who have uh, been doing everything they can to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, to prevent us from, from moving on. And so that's the real problem, you know, back in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, when uh, the Cuyahoga River caught on fire, and that sort of awakened a national consciousness about the threat of air and water pollution. And we actually had, you know, President Richard Nixon, Republican, who founded the EPA in in part uh, due to public concerns. It wasn't such a partisan political issue back then, and now it is, and, 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 and that's really the obstacle here. It seems like there's nothing that can happen that will convince some of those who have a vested interest to be willing to be part of the solution, which means that they remain a big part of the problem.
0: Yeah, in fact, there's been a shift in American politics on this. Um, You know, uh, 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 over the course of the past century uh, or more, uh, a lot of the progress we've made on environmental issues has been led by Republicans, whether it was Teddy Roosevelt or Nixon, as you say, or George W. Bush, you know, they, they cared about, the outdoors, they, you know, they're, 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 in fact, that was sort of part of their DNA. Um, Who would
1: have thought that conservatives would want to conserve? Yeah, yeah you would think.
0: You would think that that was part of the identity. But we've entered into a period where it's become super binary, and where it's not just we don't want environmental regulations. Any, you know, any pristine place that may exist on the earth, we want to drill. You know, we want to prove we don't care. Um, and that's not just Trump or it's not just Maga, but it does seem on the right, uh not just by the way in the United States, but worldwide that this yeah. is this has happened. One of the people you yeah. point the finger to uh, at in 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 the book um, uh, announced his retirement today, the day we're recording this, although people may hear it uh, a few days later, and that's Rupert Murdoch. Can you talk about what role you've seen him play in all this?
1: Oh yeah, he's you know one of a a fairly small number of individuals who has almost single-handedly helped create the the crisis moment that we're in now. In the way that he weaponized uh, News Corp, uh, this global media empire, as a tool for the fossil fuel industry, Um, Saudi Arabia uh, was the second largest uh, stakeholder in News Corp uh, for a number of years until they were forced to uh, to sell off their shares. Uh, But he has essentially used you know that that media empire he has used as a cudgel to discredit climate science um to create doubt and confusion about the viability of alternative uh, renewable energy um he has single handedly helped slow the movement towards uh you know away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy Uh, particularly here in the United States uh, through Fox News, the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, um, the the, the noise machine that he has created um, that has helped sort of align that entire party, uh, the entire Republican Party and the party faithful. Um, They've absorbed it, you know, as you said, part of their DNA, it's part of their cultural identity now is to deny climate change for no good reason other than it's very convenient to the fossil fuel industry for them to do so.
0: Yeah. And what, but, but, you know, it strikes me also interesting, and you talk about this in, in in the book, is that this is not just a one-off of Rupert Murdoch in the United States. This is in his uh, sort of modus operandi, whether it's here or Australia or the UK. He's been promoting this wherever he controls media.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm, And I actually experienced... Um, the sort of Murdoch disinformation machine in in full, uh, you know, uh, in full deployment um, during what's come to be known as the Black Summer. Um, I was on sabbatical in Sydney, uh, late 2019, early 2020, uh, to work with scientists there looking at extreme weather events, and I arrived for perhaps the most profound example of climate change driven extreme weather when these wildfires spread out across the continent. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the entire country, it felt, was ablaze. And um, and there was massive destruction and the near extinction of, uh, of koalas um, in New South Wales. Um, there was this level of consciousness that came out of that. But the Murdoch media empire, which has an even greater stranglehold on Australia than they have in the United States. Murdoch uh, controls most of the print media um, and news channels in Australia, and he was using that to promote the usual disinformation that we've now seen here in the state. Oh, it's, you know, it's um, natural. It's due to arson. It's not due to the dry you know, hot conditions that favor these extreme uh, wildfires, uh, or it's due to, you know, uh, sort of improper forest management uh, practices. In fact, the disinformation got so bad that his own son, James Murdoch, called him out in the Australia media for promoting disinformation in the face of this, this national tragedy that Australia was experienced, Um, a tragedy which was a direct consequence of the fossil fuel intensive pathway Rupert Murdoch has helped put us on.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, his son James, who may have a shred of decency somewhere in him, is not in charge. He's not the one who's going to, no? His son Lachlan is, and he doesn't seem to have a shred of decency, so. No, and that that is most
1: unfortunate because it's sort of, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, Lachlan Murdoch will almost certainly uh, continue in the policies of so it, it makes his retirement almost irrelevant because um, Lachlan will be taking them probably in the same direction
0: another interesting phenomenon that relates to this and and I, I'm obviously as somebody who comes in, out of both policy world and the media world interested in the intersection and you you talk about it and this is an area that you study but it's the you know it's the way one hand washes the other you know uh, we had MBS, on Fox News just the other day, um, and it was really—I mean, I found it nauseating on many levels to, to begin with the fact that he was there uh, and that his reputation was being sort of cleaned up by Fox. Um, uh, but uh, you know, he—he—he he, he was very bald-faced about um, a number of ways that he is spinning all of this and you know the desire that you know i mean their main business of course is petrochemical the oil business um uh on the one hand he said you know jared kushner can keep the two billion dollars i gave him no matter what happens um which is one of the most astonishing displays of public corruption i've ever seen and it's then been remarkable isn't it and yeah. well it's remarkable that he's able to to, to to do it and the other hand
1: when when, when hunter biden is being you know uh, you know held uh, to I, I mean is 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 now under investigation for charges that would normally not be um, you know, not lead to prosecution for anybody else. <laughs> right, right,
0: exactly. Well, exactly. But the other thing, and and this is just an interesting phenomenon in the context of how does the oil industry get away with it, is he said, well, if I can sports wash, and you know that that you know it produces GDP growth for me, then I'm going to keep sports washing, and and a lot of these states in 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 that part of the world, you know, Qatar hosted the World Cup, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they just seem to distract the world from what they're doing by saying, look over here and not over here.
1: Yeah. It's disturbing. And they're not held, uh, you know, uh, to uh, any reasonable standard uh, when it comes to the conduct uh, that we're talking about. I mean, you can count on the fingers of your hands, you know, the, the number of bad actors um, and bad players who have almost single-handedly put us where we are with respect to the climate crisis. It's MBS. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's um, uh, Vladimir Putin. It's of course uh, Murdoch uh, through his media empire. It's, you know, the Koch brothers or the remaining Koch brother, uh, Charles Koch, um, Robert Mercer, Elon Musk. Um, It's all of the usual suspects who in one way or another have created... The existing power structure that keeps us addicted to fossil fuels when we know it's essentially destroying our civilization.
0: Well, yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it's the ghost of John D. Rockefeller and and Standard Oil and then the Seven Sisters. And they continue to cr- control everything. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I know, ne- I've I never out- gone.
1: The Rockefeller Brothers Foundation is quite enlightened. I think they feel responsibility for that, and they have actually helped lead the fossil fuel divestment movement. So, there, I believe in redemption. You know, if if the if, if those who represent the legacy of these, um, you know, the fossil fuel interests were to come down on the right side rather than just engage in greenwash, then it would be appropriate for us to embrace them. But by and large, that's not what's happening.
0: Right, and and you know, Exxon for years um suppressed information on this stuff, sold a different story, uh, and yet somehow because of their political power has never paid the price for that that, say, the tobacco right. companies did. I
1: mean, it's remarkable. If you look at, it, you've probably seen the uh, leaked documents. Uh, 1982, uh, Exxon had this internal report uh, by their own science division. They had a team of scientists making projections of future warming based on business as usual uh, assumptions about fossil fuel burning. And their predictions were right on the mark. They predicted they predicted exactly how much warming we would experience by now. And moreover, their scientists referred to the potential consequences. And these aren't the words of Al Gore or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is ExxonMobil's own scientists. They referred to the consequences of that warming as catastrophic. And what do they do? They buried that report. They fired. They got rid of that group um, and engaged in the world's greatest, you know, most well-funded disinformation campaign—the fossil fuel industry disinformation campaign.
0: But it's a crime against humanity, right? I mean, it, it really is. It's worse than that. It's, worse. it's a crime against the planet. Yeah, well, true, true. But I, you know, I, I think of it, it when I was saying crime against humanity. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Yeah. Uh, Millions of people have been impoverished. The planet has lost trillions of dollars in resources that can't be replaced.
1: No, it's right. It's it's certainly a crime against humanity. And and I argue it goes even one step further. It's a crime against the entire planet, Um, not just us, but every other living thing um, on this planet. So, yeah, I mean, and of course, the the book, um, the book gets into that a little bit, as you note, in the last chapter. Um, But it's also really about the lessons that we can learn about where we are, this sort of fragile moment between, you know, this sort of tussle between resilience and the climate system does exhibit some resilience, but there's also fragility. You push it too hard. And that's what history tells us. If you push the system too hard, you can get these sort of runaway consequences. And, and that's that's a possible future if we don't act quickly. And the main obstacle to that, as you know, it's not physical, it's not physics, it's not climate physics, it's not the technology. We've got the technology to decarbonize our economy. It's entirely political.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I want to, in the minutes we have remaining, I'd like to talk about two sides of it. Well, on the one hand, yeah. you know, I used to do a bunch of work around energy and climate policy and, you know, over the course of the past 20, 25 years. And a yeah. lot of the things that we talked about 20, 25 years ago, um, vehicle electrification, um, uh, uh, moving towards a more distributed uh, energy mix on the grid, um, yeah. more consciousness of these things, you know, n- nations working together. On the- Fr- frankly, I think 20 years ago, we would have been skeptical that we could have right. achieved a lot of what has been achieved. I mean, there's some bad news here, but there is some good news. We're yeah. much farther along towards the embrace of um, electric vehicles than anybody thought was possible. We're much farther along led by places like China in in the, the sure. proliferation of new uh, green technologies. I, I mean, do, yeah. do you see that side of the story as well?
1: I do. And, you know, I see a China that was actually decommissioning coal-fired power plants when we had an administration, uh, the Obama administration, that had come to the table with them. And we got a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and China to reduce carbon emissions. China exceeded their commitment. Um, There was good faith on the part of both parties. We, the largest cumulative carbon emitter on the planet, China today the largest uh, emitter of carbon right now, but we've put more collective carbon into the atmosphere than anybody else. And so those two parties coming together was critical in laying the foundation for the Paris Agreement um, and the subsequent progress we've seen. Of course, the problem was we then elected a president who unilaterally backed out of the Paris Agreement, the only country in the world to do that, and that sent a message to China and India and others that we were no longer serious, that provided them an excuse for being less serious uh, about their own commitments. And and we've frankly seen a slowdown in progress since then. I I think we're seeing some restoration of that uh, under the current administration, but there are all of these geopolitical challenges, as you know, that really complicate that today.
0: Yeah, so let's get get to that. Um, As you may have heard when I did the introduction. Uh, we are doing a series of podcasts in, in the run-up to COP28, the Climate Summit, in Dubai, uh, which will take place, I think, from November 30th to December 12th of this year.
1: And I do hope to be able to participate in at least one well, of Well,
0: I was very much yeah. hope you will. And, you know, we've brought together a diverse group of experts. Uh, I do say, by the way, and I, you know, because we're full disclosure here, that, you uh, the, 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 we got a grant to do, to do all this stuff from the embassy of the UAE here, uh, and uh, you know one condition we we said of this was that these discussions would be completely independent. And actually, I haven't even had any influence over the the constitution of these panels. Each of the chairs of the panels have, um, uh, because I don't, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to blur this. Uh, the subject is 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 too too important um uh and I mean, pe-
1: uae isn't saudi arabia they're not saudi arabia <laughs> no. they're the, well the, they're
0: not but you know as we go into cop 28 there's been a lot of controversy around the fact that a petro state is hosting this and will they go far enough and you know i've heard both sides of the argument i've heard them say you know we have mazdar we've done a lot of green tech we've pushed forward we're trying to move off of being an oil-based economy and you know Say yes, that's true, and then, on the other hand, you know they've been they've they've been part of that world for a long, long time. Um, what's your hope and expectation for cop twenty eight?
1: Yeah, you know um, it, it's a great question. Uh, cop twenty seven was somewhat disappointing in that we had achieved some significant commitments uh, at cop twenty um, six enough from you know the collective countries of the world. To take us from a path where we were headed towards, you know, seven degree Fahrenheit warming by the end of the the century to something more like um, uh, four degrees uh, warming, almost cutting the projected warming in half, that's still too much, we've got to get warming below one and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit, or to avoid some of the worst consequences. So COP26 didn't go far enough. And part of why it didn't go far enough is at the last minute, um, India uh, objected to the language. There was language that the countries of the world would phase out fossil fuels on a fairly accelerated time frame. India objected over that language after the agreement had basically already been reached. It was almost, it was, I think, in violation of parliamentary procedure, frankly. It was at the last minute but there's nothing that could be done other than to weaken the language. They would only tolerate the language uh, phase down rather than phase out. Um, And so we got a weaker agreement in in language and in collective uh, commitments. Part of the problem there was the Indias of the world uh, developing countries in particular – are displeased that the industrial powers of the world haven't come up with the funding that had been promised for uh, loss and damage. Basically, the you know the wealthy industrial countries providing in essence reparations for the damage that we already did through our fossil fuel burning, and they're feeling some of the worst consequences. So, funding both to help them deal with the consequences they're already confronting, and to help them leapfrog past the stage we don't want them to go through. We can't afford developing countries to go through the fossil fuel stage that we went through, the planet can't afford it. So we have to make it worth their while to skip past that, to leapfrog directly to, you know, renewable uh, and distributed uh, energy. So that was a major sticking point. At COP27 last year, there wasn't much progress at all in terms of commitments. We didn't really get much beyond what we already had from COP26, but we did reach a loss and damage agreement. And I think maybe that paves the way for some progress on mitigation, on reducing carbon emissions at COP28. But it remains to be seen. We have to keep the pressure on. I know there is a lot of cynicism, especially among young folks, um, you know, youth climate advocates who look at the fact that COP28 is going to be held by PetroState, UAE, and it just reaffirms their cynicism about the entire process. I hope that it does not end up doing that, because I do think Frankly, this is the only multilateral process we have for dealing with this crisis.
0: Yeah, I I mean, like most multilateral processes are designed to be weak. The UN was designed to be weak most, you know, because we still have this notion of national sovereignty as being preeminent, right? Which is a disaster, particularly when you get to things like the climate and hopefully-
1: Biodiversity, and we haven't even signed on to the global agreement
0: on biodiversity. Right, and I, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, Hopefully, there will be some enlightened moment where we we recognize that we, in, we 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 can only protect national sovereignty by ceding some sovereignty upward onto 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 a multilateral level. But um, with regard to COP twenty eight, the majority of people are not going to be immersing themselves in the details of it. They probably will read a story on December tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth. Of this year that said well this event took place and x now you know what's the best that can be hoped for you know that i mean i've, I've seen some rumblings that people are going to make some mo- financial commitments to the developing world yeah the
1: financial commitments are important because loss and damage is not yet i forget what the promise is how many billions of dollars but we're not anywhere close to coming up with the funds that had originally been promised um, uh, for the loss and damage. Um, So that's important uh, because I do think it will help. um, I think the demonstration of good faith on on that side of things will help along, you know, getting the Indias of the world to to agree to stricter language and to make uh, stronger commitments to reducing their carbon emissions. the other thing that was disappointing, frankly, about COP26 um, was uh, there was originally a hope that there would be some agreement to stop funding new fossil fuel infrastructure. Uh, the N- International Energy Agency has said, you know, and there, they've been no cheerleader on renewable energy, but, um, but they've been very clear about the fact that um, there is no way to stabilize warming below that dangerous one and a half Celsius, three degree Fahrenheit level and continue to expand fossil fuel infrastructure at the same time, which we're still doing in the United States, and other countries are doing it as well. So, what we really need is a commitment to fund no new fossil fuel infrastructure, no new coal-fired uh, power plants, no new uh, natural gas or oil pipelines, um, no new, uh, you know, uh, uh, ocean uh, uh, drilling, oil drilling. Um, we we need to stop. Cold turkey on that doesn't mean stopping all fossil fuel extraction. Uh, we have to phase that out. Um, we need to meet energy needs as we decarbonize our economy, but we have to stop expanding the capacity for fossil fuels, which is it's crazy. In it's what we're still doing.
0: Uh, yeah, now, I would say as as just a final point, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Um, when the whole process. Uh, started around the time of the Paris Accords. I, you know, the United States was kind of slow, slow to the table. And, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of talk about the Paris Accords, but my view of them at the time was these are very weak. Essentially, it's a bunch of countries saying, we're going to set our own standards and we'll try to meet them. Let's...
1: Name and shame. The enforcement mechanism was so, name and shame. Right. And, yes. and, it, and,
0: it, and it was just, we were dragging our feet. And that was the Obama administration. We went through, obviously Trump was no ally in of, of these issues. But Biden in the Inflation That's Reduction Act an understatement. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, exactly. But in Biden in the Inflation Reduction Act made the biggest single commitment to green energy, green tech in American history. And and it really seemed to me like a kind of a watershed moment, which did not, I think, get the kind of coverage it deserved but 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 am i overstating that
1: no absolutely it was the boldest the only real climate legislation ever signed into law by an american president um i forget how much 40 billion dollars i think uh, no 240 billion dollars i think of investment in uh, yeah. in in clean energy and in other climate investments um and just just yesterday he announced uh this new climate core uh to basically you know fund uh, young folks to um you know 20,000
0: 20,000 young people to go out and work yeah, on the cloud 20,000
1: yeah to to deploy all of the technology into in the solutions that we have now so and that was part of the IRA uh, inflation reduction act that was one of the things uh, that was in there um and so it was the boldest legislation yet passed and yet it was highly constrained by the fact that it could only pass with the blessing of a Cold, uh, a coal state uh, Democrat uh, from West Virginia who demanded basically a watering down of the language. And so we got a much weaker agreement than we might have got, you know, with 51 or 52 Democratic uh, senators. Uh, it was 50 Democrats in the tie breaking vote by the vice president. Um, and so we got the strongest agreement we could get under those circumstances. And what frustrates me, David, is that you hear a lot of folks saying, uh, you know, blaming uh, Biden. Um, in New York the other day, there was uh, you know it's climate week, uh, UN uh, uh, meeting in uh, New York City, um, thousands of people marching in the streets, and a lot of the criticism was of the Biden administration. But look, the Biden administration can only sign into law legislation that comes out of Congress, and that was the best legislation we could get at the time. Moreover, the sorts of executive actions that we would like to see the administration uh, take are being turned back by conservative courts, by courts that have been loaded uh, with conservative judges and justices after four years of, of, of Trump. And so what I find, you know, dangerous is this sort of circling the wagon, not circling the wagons, uh, the sort of the, the circular firing squad where climate activists blaming Biden and Democrats, rather than realizing that if we want stronger policy. The only solution is for us to get out there and vote in mass numbers in elections, vote out these climate deniers, vote in climate advocates, give Congress the sorts of the, the kind of majority that it needs to pass more stringent legislation. So I I, I, I I try to remind some of my well-intentioned younger friends that make sure we blame the bad actors and, and not you know, uh, shoot ourselves in the foot by, you know, by, for example, you know, blaming it on Biden and dampening enthusiasm for people to turn out in this next election because that's what's critical if we want to do more.
0: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more strongly. You know, had there been one more Democrat in the Senate and Joe Manchin's vote, uh, who you you were very uh, nice not to mention him by name, but by Joe Manchin was the guy. <laughs> uh it, if his vote had been offset you would have had a different bill you would have
1: yeah, that's right had a
0: made a, a different contribution and and similarly the more democrats you get in if you know if you can tr- have, maintain a majority uh you don't get judges who do this kind of craziness um
1: and I mean, you're right we can you know it's a slippery slope that sort of thinking that sort of when we try to reimagine history what if Supreme Court hadn't stopped the recount <laughs> and we we got a President Al Gore. Where would we be today? Yeah, would no, be and
0: absolutely, absolutely right. But, you know, we are where we are and people are like, well, exactly. what can I do about climate? You know, I sort my garbage. I drive a electric car. What else? You know, I ride a bike. What else can I do? Well, the, you know, the one party is anti-climate and one party is trying to save it. And, you know, it's not, you know, the, this is not an issue that can be both sides. You know,
1: no, you know, David. That's what I love about you know your show here. Um, you know, you're willing to call out bad actors. Um, you're willing to state objective facts without fear of um, of pushback. Um, too much of our media today is not willing to do that. They do fall victim to false balance um, and false equivalence, and it's part of why we're where we are today. There isn't enough of a penalty. For the bad actors who have led us here, because too many of our media outlets are not willing to call out the bad actors, and when you don't call out the bad actors, um, it allows the public to say, "Oh well, they're all bad," and so it doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter when nothing could be
0: more wrong. Yeah, it's so true, you know. And I just, I, I'm, I could go on and on because this issue matters a lot to me, but. Uh, and hope maybe you'll come back. We can keep carrying. I would love the, uh, to. I would love to.
1: I, I I could talk with you for hours, David. Well, so I, I, this I, well good. A, good. I,
0: I hope we can. But you know, one of the things that strikes me, and this is a maybe a tangential issue, but I think back on so many stories I've read in the media where so many experts have been quoted and nowhere did it say this guy is getting paid by big oil. You know, right. right? And the and right. the and you know, it's like, oh no, this is our leading expert on energy, and it's like yeah, but he's on the payroll. It's you know,
1: oh yeah, or even worse than that, it's you know, he he's the president of Americans for Prosperity. Oh, I'm for prosperity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How can I do? No, it's a it's a front group funded by the Koch brothers. Um, you know uh, that that you know to sow doubt and confusion and and and, and yeah, there isn't enough of that sort of basic and i mean this is almost like google level investigative journalism all you have to do is google some of these organizations go to SourceWatch or what have you and you can see that no they're fossil fuel front groups they're not honest players they're they're not you know honest brokers um they're bad actors and we can't put them you know we can't somehow you know put them on an equal footing with you know objective voices with scientists um, or you know uh, climate policy experts uh, independent you know uh, climate policy experts i think this is part of the problem that the media or our, our, our mainstream media in general sort of um continue to promote the false equivalents about problems like climate change um to both sides in it um, It's sort of like, you know, would you both sides, whether the earth is flat, you know, when you have a NASA, you know, expert, do you have to also have a member of the flat earth society side by side so you can debate whether or not the earth is flat? No, it's absurd. We wouldn't do that. And yet that's essentially what we continue to do when it comes to matters like climate.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. We say it here all too often. People who listen to all of our podcasts get it all too often, I suppose, but the objective of journalism is not balance. It's truth. And if one side is lying, you have to call it a lie. Um, and if one side is telling the truth, you, you know, that's, that's what the goal has got to be. Uh, and in this case, it's just that much more important. Um, and, you know, interestingly, you know, your book uh, is is – Uh, balanced in the best way um, uh, by showing the range of perspectives of credible experts and scientists. And there are a range of views, and people need to know what those range of views are. But in terms of the kind of debate that takes place in the public, the core issues still kind of black and white, because one side is saying, let's not pay any attention. Climate change is is a hoax that it's man-made. And, you know, it was hot in the summer and cold in the winter. That's, you know, I mean, it's kind of nonsense.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the debate among actual experts, among scientists is how bad is it going to get? It's not, is it bad and is it going to get worse? Um, Are we warming the planet? Are we you know, uh, creating more extreme and damaging uh, weather events, extreme weather events. There's no scientific debate, and there's no
0: scientific things. debate that a lot of the change is man-made. It's just a thing. It's reality.
1: It's as I sometimes tell people, and again, the book sort of gets into the the what happened in the past and how we know that we're warming. It is us who are warming the planet today. And, and yes, there's natural climate variability. We, we see that in the past. There were times when the planet was even warmer today, when CO2 levels were higher. But the rate at which we are warming the planet has no precedent as far back as we're able to go. And so, yeah, you know, there is, um, ironically, and, and part of the purpose of the book is to confront not just denialism, but doomism because denial is sort of on the wane. It just isn't credible to claim nothing's happening because people can see it. And so what you see are polluters and those promoting, you know, the fossil fuel uh, industry's agenda, conservative news outlets and politicians. They've sort of turned to other tactics. Um, They're moving away from denial, um, but it's delay. Uh, You know, oh, well, we can We can just uh, develop technology that will fix this later, trust us, or division, getting climate advocates fighting with each other so that they don't represent a sort of united front demanding action. And ironically, doomism, if you can convince, you know, those who would otherwise be concerned about climate that it's too late to do anything. Then that potentially leads them down the path of, of inaction and disengagement. And as I like to say, the uh, you know the the polluters they don't care about um, the path you take; they just care about the destination. They want you disengaged. They don't want you on the front lines. And and so there is this way in which doomism has been weaponized by bad actors to convince people that hey, there's nothing we can do anyways. And part of where it has been weaponized is misrepresenting what happened in Earth's past, like major extinction events in the past, arguing that we have already set off a runaway warming that's unstoppable and we will all go extinct, and arguing that there's evidence for that from the past. And what I show in the book is there isn't. If you look at some of these past events, the mass extinction events, it was from carbon dioxide pollution. It wasn't human generated. It was slower carbon dioxide from volcanic you know, uh, activity over, you know, longer periods of time. What we're doing is we're putting all of the carbon that nature buried over 100 million years through natural processes, and we're putting it back into the atmosphere over 100 years, a million times faster. And that's the problem. Neither we nor other living things can adapt changes in climate that are that rapid, especially when we have a global infrastructure supporting more than 8 billion people dependent on the stability of a climate that existed for millennia before we started changing it.
0: Extraordinarily well put. Also, um, a perfect summation uh, that to, I, I think, convince listeners that they should go out and get This book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from the Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis, Uh, listening today, I'm sure all of you uh, have heard um, the insight and uh, 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 the methodical and thoughtful and, in the best way, balanced approach that Dr. Mann has brought to this. So thank you, Michael, for joining us. Hopefully we can continue this conversation um, uh, uh, long long beyond even you know this 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 cop or any particular summit uh, because I think we you know we can't drop the subject or say, well, we've checked this box, you know it's done this this is a this is a, a, a the the work of a generation. Uh, and, and, uh, I just, thank you for leading it. And I thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, uh, David. It's truly been a pleasure talking with you and, uh, and I do look forward to, to talking again.
0: That's thank you very much. And to all of you who've been listening, um, uh, this is the kind of discussion we want to have here. Uh, it's why you've come. So come back every day. We've got podcasts each and every day, um, and hope you will join us for them for now. Bye-bye.